Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I am talking to Danny Lennon today. So hopefully many of you know Danny already. Uh, if you don't, then maybe you know Sigma Nutrition and you'll hear Danny's voice and you'll realize who he is. Uh, Danny is the owner of Sigma Nutrition and the host of a fantastic podcast, one I've been listening to for years. I think it was 2014 you started actually doing that. And I think right. we were we were two years after that um, with Revive Stronger. So um, you're doing a very good job of over 200 episodes. It's incredible to see and actually very motivating and inspirational in many ways. Uh, he's also an international speaker, just come back from Australia at the UEBC with uh, the guys at JPS um, and a fantastic speaker at that. He also has a master's degree in nutritional sciences um, and is a competitive powerlifter and all-round really good guy. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to add there, Danny. No, uh, apart from very kind words, and I probably won't live up to any of that for people. So <laughs> sorry ahead of time for the disappointment. Well, we're going to be talking about something that's never really come up on the podcast before, which um, I think it's because it's relatively new. Um, a lot of the kind of research that's been going into it, and um, people have heard of like circadian rhythms, chrononutrition, these things are kind of like a bit buzzwords almost a little bit like gut health is at the moment uh, but mm. maybe not quite as uh, kind of attractive as that but I think a lot of people think about nutrition and they think about their daily life and very robotic and nutrient timing has become kind of something that's very based around like protein feedings carbohydrates it's not really thought about okay what's that impact on us as like uh, outside of kind of what's happening with MPS and things like this. So I don't know if we can start off with what is the circadian rhythm, first of all, um, and then see where we go from there. Sure. Yeah. So maybe uh, I tend to like to explain this by just thinking at a, a broader level of biological processes and how they kind of cycle back and forth between usually two opposing processes and then how that also relates to different types of rhythms we see in biology. So for example, one that it will be super familiar to your audience would be we know with muscle protein balance, for example, we have these opposing processes of muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. And we kind of cycle back and forth between these two completely opposing processes. And it's not that one is necessarily better than the other or that we want one at all time. We want to be moving back and forth between them appropriately for whatever that goal is. So the same for any anabolic and catabolic process. We go back and forth between anabolism and catabolism. So the same way we think of uh, an accelerator and a brake in a car. It's not that one is better than the other. We use one at the appropriate time and then cycle back and forth between them in an appropriate manner. And it's also probably counterproductive to have your foot down on both at the same time. So we can we see examples of this all across uh, biology. Ones that we'll probably talk about throughout this discussion, there's probably four primarily that relate to kind of circadian biology and chrononutrition. Uh, so light, dark cycles, wake, sleep cycles, activity, rest cycles, and then feeding, fasting cycles. So again, opposing processes that we cycle back and forth between and that not one is better than the other, but appropriately moving between them. So where we, we get to kind of rhythms, then the various different processes uh, in the body run on uh, a certain rhythm with a certain kind of time course. This could be hormones. We'll mention, for example, melatonin. You see the same thing with cortisol, has a rhythm where it starts high in the day, goes lower throughout the day. Insulin sensitivity, your core body temperature, all these different processes run on a, a certain rhythm. A circadian rhythm has kind of two elements to it. First, it's around 24 hours. Um, what makes it circadian is that if you took away all external factors that could influence that, so for example, light, temperature, so on, the external environment around it, that rhythm would still run at about that 24-hour uh, pattern. Right, so that it's, it's endogenous to that rhythm, and it's that's what makes it circadian in nature. But like I said, it's around 24 hours. It's not precisely to 24 hours. So what we uh, have kind of evolved to do is to get that to sync up with our light dark cycle. Is we can use external stimuli in our environment to kind of tweak or set that rhythm, or what we call entrain that rhythm to a more precise. A time period of around 24 hours. So the main thing that's going to set that or entrain that is light. And so we call any anabolic stimulus a Zeitgeber. It's a, a German word, a beautiful word to, to remember uh, that I've probably butchered. And so light is the main entraining factor that can help set these rhythms to that more kind of precise 24-hour uh, rhythm. So these anything that we hear of like a, a diurnal rhythm or a diurnal, diurnal pattern is something that has this 24-hour uh, 
uh, cycle. And if it's circadian, we usually have an external stimulus to kind of set it to that 24 hour period. Uh, we can also have like processes that run more or less than that. They'd be, for example, um, one that would be in uh, rather than a circadian rhythm, we have ones that are longer than that would be infradian rhythms like the human menstrual cycle, for example, runs over a particular rhythm or pattern, but it's, that period is much longer than 24 hours. And then similarly, we have things that are shorter as well. They'd be ultradian rhythms. So circadian is uh, a property that's intrinsic to that kind of rhythm or process itself. And it runs at around 24 hours. We set it more precisely to a 24-hour period by using external stimuli in our, in our environment, the main one being uh, light, uh, but also there are others. And that's probably where we, we get into nutrition stuff, for example, feeding, uh, as I mentioned, temperature and so on. So that's what we're talking about with circadian rhythms. And there's probably other elements to that we, we can talk about, about um that we can get into whatever you want, but hopefully that's a, a good start point. No, I think it's it's fascinating to me because I think it's one of those things we all know we like kind of being in a flow. We like kind of whenever you change something, whether or not that's like, I don't know, you go on holiday and then obviously that disrupts things or you change your diet. Even if it's different timings, this can always feel uncomfortable and unusual. And it's kind of like, I like that it's now, okay, we we kind of know why, because the body likes being in this kind of rhythm. And I guess many of the things now, uh, as we've become more and more modernized, uh, make it very difficult, like kind of the dark and light rhythms. We always mm. have light available um, and many of us work indoors and we don't get, we kind of get not the light we need from the sunlight, which has all the lux right. and it's going to give us what we need. And then we get all the kind of blue light during the night if we're not careful. Um, so I don't know if, I don't know if you want to delve into that a little bit. I think our audience is very sure. interested about how we can manage maybe our, our kind of light rhythms. Yeah. So th there's one important thing that I'll, I'll touch on that, that you just brought up as well, Steve, of that kind of intuitively a lot of people will talk about they ha their body clock, right? Or, or when they travel and they're jet lagged, they feel, oh, my body clock is off. Or if they sleep in, oh, my body clock is off. And that's, they're kind of right that colloquially that's what we can think of this circadian clock. But rather than one circadian clock, um, we actually have many all around the body. So we have our main or central or master clock which is this kind of bundle of like 20 or 30,000 neuronal cells, which sits at the hypothalamus in the brain. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN. And this is our, what we refer to when we're talking about our main master clock or our central clock, that this master circadian clock. And that's the main thing that sets these rhythms like core body temperature, melatonin, these other circadian rhythms. However, we also now have circadian clocks in tissues all around the body. So we have circadian clocks that are located in the intestine, in the pancreas, in the heart, in fat tissue, in muscle tissue, uh, in immune cells, and, and so on. And the interesting thing is now we see that certain things can help entrain the circadian rhythms in those independent of that central clock. So that the central or the master clock can set those rhythms and affect those peripheral clocks, but so can other things like feeding, which we'll come to. So that's an important thing to know that we have this central clock and then we have these other peripheral clocks. With light and dark exposure specifically, that's the main thing that regulates our master clock and therefore knock on effect on all other uh, kind of circadian clocks as well. It's, it's the strongest site keeper we have and it's most important. So there's probably two elements to this uh, in terms of what we can practically do about it or what would be best for our circadian uh, biology. So if we're thinking about what would be ideal, first of all, we'd the one that most people already know about is trying to avoid lots of blue light late at night. The reason being it, it kind of, number one, it will disrupt that circadian rhythm. It will cause um, a, a change in phase or a phase shift. Um, but one of the, the, the primary things it does is that blue light exposure will suppress melatonin, which is what we don't want. So late at night, we want this increase in melatonin in the hours leading up to sleep. And uh, that can be suppressed by this exposure to blue light, which comes from artificial lighting, comes from iPads, laptops, so on. And so trying to mitigate that in some ways uh, is what we want to try and best to do, have a darker environment. Uh, and we can talk about this later on if you want kind of more practical stuff. 
But what's maybe not talked about as much is at the same time to get a kind of robust circadian rhythm in many of these different processes, we probably want to try and get plenty of blue light, particularly daylight early in the day. And as you mentioned, the the lighting intensity indoors, even with fully lit lights, is nowhere near the magnitude of the light intensity we'd have outside even on a cloudy day. So a cloudy day outside like it is here, probably... Ten tenfold the light intensity indoors. If it's a sunny day, it's probably maybe a hundredfold, something of that magnitude. So trying to get some outdoor exposure to daylight early in the day and then avoiding uh, lots of light exposure late in the evening can be uh, kind of what we want. So it's again, trying to sync up what would our these things that set our circadian rhythms set line up our behaviors and the kind of those circadian processes. Our behavior is the exposure to light and dark and try and syncing that up with when we would ideally want each of those. And then we would do the same with sleep. When would we try and sleep and wake? Ideally, we want, we want to sleep during the biological night and wake during the day. Uh, that's why with shift work, for example, we have, again, circadian misalignment, which I'll probably explain in a moment. Um, and the same thing can potentially happen with feeding times, which we'll come to. So the idea of circadian alignment, the best way to think of this is, again, two different ways people can think of this. First, we said there's these kind of rhythms that are set by that central clock. We also have rhythms set by peripheral clocks uh, around the body. Now, we want them to be synchronized or in sync or in alignment. Now, if one of them was to shift and be they're now out of sync, we can now have some degree of misalignment between that central and kind of peripheral clocks, which which is this kind of term circadian misalignment. You can also think of it of when these uh, in, endogenous circadian rhythms that be running at times that we want now get out uh, or shifted away from the behaviors we're having. And again, the example I gave was shift work that now we have a behavior, i.e. wakefulness at a time when we, during the biological night where we would want that to be uh, be sleep time. So this circadian alignment then can cause a whole whole host of problems. And it's the same thing you see with um, like sleep deprivation or sleep restriction. There's, there's like no process in the body that's probably not negatively affected. And it seems to be the same with like circadian misalignment. You look at the any stuff where they, they do a circadian misalignment protocol and you see things like someone's cortisol rhythm gets completely flipped around. So usually when that's higher in the morning and uh, dips down over the day, you see that completely flipped around. You see that someone's leptin levels are, are much lower even uh, relative to anything else. So we know that when leptin drops, that's a kind of a signal of low energy availability. It's mm-hmm. going to make someone want to be consume more food or move around less. You see quite big differences in someone's glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, beta cell function, and all of those will make sense maybe when we talk about some of the food or the implications for feeding at least. So all of these kind of negative things happen with our physiology when we have circadian misalignment. And the biggest thing driving that is when we have a um, a desynchronization between when we want light exposure, um, wake and sleep times, feeding and fasting and activity and rest. So when those kind of four cycles get moved out of sync, we're going to get some degree of circadian misalignment. Um, and so trying to time our light exposure and dark exposure to keep in circadian alignment is kind of the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And actually, something that's just springing to mind is um, whether or not that changes by season. I assume it does in that when we're in kind of the winter months, at least here in the UK, it's dark, there's not as much sunlight. Do we kind of go out of our way to like get even more sunlight? Or is it just a case of, oh, the body's kind of expecting that, it's expecting less, and that is aligned? Is there research into that? Yeah, so there's been a couple of studies that have looked at... um, uh, they were done in the States looking at, uh, they did, did camping studies. So essentially when you put someone out and they go camping in the wilderness, they have no exposure awesome. to artificial lighting and stuff. So they're now going to after pretty quickly after a, a couple of days, now their kind of sleep and wake times are going to match more likely natural light and dark. And so they did one within the summer and the winter. And again, you see those differences in how long people or what time people's sleep is going to start at what time they're going to wake. And so it makes some uh, kind of logical sense to me that, again, we would have probably had a seasonality to that exposure um, as we were evolving with probably 
relatively uh, longer days. And so that may mean that, again, your feeding window could be potentially longer during those kind of light hours. Maybe the kind of issue now is, as you alluded to, I think at the top of the show, most people maybe don't really get that robust seasonality. Mm. Um, they, they'll still get some degree of it, but you can mitigate a lot of it with artificial heating, lighting, and so on. Um, but yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, what that does pragmatically is how much that shifts the curve. I'm, I'm not too sure, but, uh, yeah, there, there probably is some seasonality that we've evolved with. It's really interesting. Cause I guess, yeah, like I, I said, and people have like, I don't know, they have to get up at 5am for work, whether or not it's summer or winter. And in winter it's pitch black for another four hours, whereas right. in summer it may well be light. So it, it's incredibly interesting kind of how, and I guess, unfortunately, I guess many of the modern things we have now can also be used to put the dark and light rhythms maybe more so in our favor, like blue light blockers mm. or having blackout blinds or um, sad lights. Um, right. Maybe they can be used. I don't know if you know how, I, I guess we could dive into some practical application of that. I've kind of gone that way. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we can definitely get into that. But I think there's plenty of things that also work against us as we can kind of see not, not only exposure to those things, but things that are almost unavoidable. So for example, people's time they have to get up for work or school typically is not kind of negotiable. And you see this is kind of particularly a problem with um, kids of like a school age where naturally teenagers are kind of set to be more of a, a later chronotype. So at their normal wake time, if they were kind of left to sleep as they could, would probably be to get up a bit later. Now they have this specific time where they have to get up early. And now in certain places, you may need to be like really early because of whatever their school bus run is. And this is particularly, I think, a problem in the States where you can get like really early uh, start times. Um, there was one uh, kind of trial um, or like pilot kind of thing they did. I think it was based in England where they looked at the impact of like shifting back the start time for school. And you see pretty dramatic differences in grades wow. in uh, for those school kids. And it seems that the biggest difference comes in the classes that were usually like first and second of the day. So again, it's like we're getting them out of bed way beyond what their normal kind of chronotype would dictate. Um, so there's there's that. we Things like daylight savings, uh, which have been around. Again, that's just causing a uh, circadian phase shift whenever that arrives. Uh, you see some pretty weird stuff where... Um, the day after there's been uh, a loss of an hour because of daylight savings, you tend to see increased rates of like car accidents and stuff yeah. like that. So all this kind of crazy stuff is going on. Now, some of it is tied to probably like sleep deprivation and so on. But um, we have these things in our modern environment that are set up to kind of move us away from those. Right. Um, the same with it during wintertime, definitely in Ireland and the UK. It's feasible that someone gets up in the morning, it's, it's pitch black outside, they drive to work, they get in inside, and they work inside until 5, 6 p.m., and by the time they're coming out, it's pitch black again. Yeah. So they've had zero daylight exposure, and now they're coming home and are probably a bit more sensitive to that kind of blue light in the evening. So there, there's lots of stuff around. Um, but if there's anything particular about the, the practical, practical stuff, we can get into that now if you want, or I'm happy to leave it to the end if you want to round up altogether. Let's dig into it now because I think we might cool. attack each of these kind of exercise and nutrition and uh, light rhythms separately. So Sweet. we can do that. Yeah. So uh, if we're talking about light and let's well, let's lump in like sleep and wake with that, a few things that seem to be probably most important that I would say to people. Uh, one is that I think the regularity of sleep and wake times is, is quite important. So trying to have um, the same kind of bedtime relatively or close together um, from day to day and the same kind of wake time is probably a good idea. Um, the difficulty then becomes with differences between weekday and weekend for people who work a typical say nine to five during the week. Now we have this uh, term uh, social jet lag where you have a shift in people's usual wake times and sleep times over the weekend. So they stay up later, they stay in bed for longer in the mornings and it kind of causes that kind of uh, phase shift by maybe a couple of hours. Now Monday rolls around and they don't have a choice what time they get up at. And essentially you can get similar 
symptoms to what you would experience with jet lag because you've been phase shifted. So this kind of social jet lag idea. So trying to keep some degree of regularity as much as is practical. It's not always going to be practical. You don't have to live like a monk, but in in some degree, trying to keep some regular sleep and wake times. Um, As I mentioned, trying to be just cognizant of getting some daylight exposure early in the day has been really useful. And I've found this with people who have um, kind of came to any of our coaches with like issues around sleep um, and have been doing all the usual kind of sleep hygiene stuff, but still haven't been able to either get to sleep early enough or waking up or having some sort of sleep issue, putting an emphasis on getting some data like exposure, even for like 20 minutes in the early part of the day has been really useful in improving sleep quality. Um, and it, it's, it's obviously having other benefits too. And I think then with the sleep piece, um, avoiding blue light exposure can be done in a number of ways. I think you've mentioned a few of those already. So it could be a blue light filter on your phone or your laptop or your tablet. Uh, it could be using blue blocking glasses, which are really effective because you don't have to worry about too much else. Um, it could be having a dimmer, uh, light in your bedroom, for example. So you could either use like an amber light bulb for a lamp if you do need to get up and go to the bathroom during the night. Um, it could be using very dim lighting. There are certain alarm clocks now that will use light that is more gentle, that is not going to impact melatonin as much. So those types of things can be pretty useful. And then there's a whole host of things just around general sleep hygiene that we could talk about. Generally having a pitch black room, keeping it fairly cold consistent sleep wake times, um, and maybe having some degree of like a bedtime routine. Um, but from purely a light and dark exposure, they would be the kind of big ones. I would say, try and get that light exposure early in the day and then yeah, do things to kind of limit kind of artificial light at night as much as is practical. Fantastic. And on the kind of seasonality of that, is there anything you can do or is it kind of like, well, you've got to get up for work at this time. So there's not much you can do about kind of sunlight exposure at that time. Maybe you're meant to be asleep for a bit longer or do you think the introduction of maybe like a, a sad light um, with right. seasonal dis- def- dis- <laughs> defective disorder. <laughs> um, so it has like 10,000 lux or something that's coming out. Could that be something that helps keep us in a better alignment or is yeah. it kind of an artificial alignment that maybe yeah, puts us no, out? I, yeah, I think trying to match up that to whatever your kind of behavioral cycle is going to be. So if you are waking up at those times, then again, trying to um, base your the sleep and wake times you are set with. Say, okay, I'm going to try and make sure that I'm making my room dark at these times for sleep, even maybe if it's a br- bit bright out. Like right yep. now, the last few weeks here in Ireland, it's been bright until almost 10 o'clock at night. Yep. So, all right, so if someone's getting to sleep, trying to make that pitch black, I think using a blue light box um, uh, as is used for a seasonal affective disorder, like you say, can be really useful if someone it is going to get up early and it's pitch black outside or has to work indoors um, like in an office environment, I, I've personally found that really, really useful. Uh, I, I have one, you sit at front of you about uh, 30 centimeters yep. away and that blasts into my, my face. That can be really useful for someone who doesn't or isn't able to get outdoors or maybe doesn't have the time or is confined to being indoors. I think that's really useful. And then for people who are doing shift work, particularly, this has been a, a lifesaver. And yeah. so we use that quite routinely for anyone that does shift work, getting a blue light box um, and using that as well as maybe some melatonin supplementation as well, yeah. depending on how their their uh, shifts are set up and what type of schedule and how often and frequently they move. That's a, that's a whole other uh, issue and it's a bit of a mess, but those can be really useful. Some appropriately timed melatonin and then also on the flip side, using a blue light box um, at, at night when they're going to get up and go and do a night shift can be really, really useful. So uh, I'm a big fan of of the blue light box for sure. Cool. Yeah, that's really cool because I guess they're fairly cheap and effective things to buy in terms of, well, melatonin might not be the easiest thing, but getting the, the blue light box, I've got one as well. They're like 30 pounds or something. It's quite right. easy and effective just to put on your desk and have that if you're getting up and it's dark um, or you're unable to get out. And then like blue light blockers, you can get those dirt cheap off like Amazon. They might not look the best, um, the cheap right. ones, but you can put those yeah. on and you're kind of in a sense protected in a way um from the blue light in some way so that's really cool i think that gives people some really great practical advice 
Right. Yeah. You have to be uh, willing to look a bit weird yeah. uh, with those. Yeah. I, I was walking around an airport with them uh, a few weeks ago and I thought I'm definitely going to get stopped here because I look like this weirdo. Um, but yeah, super effective. So they're, they're worth investing in, I think. Cool. And actually, I think maybe in terms of attacking the next one, in it, like being kind of the largest priority, I guess, for circadian rhythm, what would be next? Like exercise, food, what would come next? So uh, I'm not too sure about putting a, a set hierarchy on it. And okay. I think most of, uh, I'm sure like there's, there's many inputs that will affect those. Um, I think the primary one that I've looked most at, which is where the whole area of chrononutrition comes in, is how feeding can entrain those rhythms in, in peripheral clocks. Um, there is definitely stuff the same. You get the same effect with exercise, although I haven't gone as deep in, in that area, but we you do see that exercise can, one, have a, an entraining effect on uh, peripheral circadian clocks. You also see the kind of the reverse way can work too, where certain things like core body temperature, and if you look at the circadian rhythm of that, you'll have pe certain people propose, well, because core body temperature peaks around, say, 4 or 5 p.m. on average, uh, that might be a, a theoretical case where someone could put their training session. But again, all kind of practical caveats and how much of a difference it's going to make, I'm unsure, if, it, if any, but that would be theoretically and a good time to train, you could perhaps say. So there, there could be some stuff going on with exercise. Um, like the most of the focus uh, that I've been looking at, and definitely from a metabolic standpoint, is well, what do we do about feeding? Because we've seen that food can entrain those circadian rhythms in those peripheral clocks, but not necessarily impact the master clock or the central clock. So therefore, depending on how we time food, that could cause some circadian misalignment or alignment, depending on how we put it. We also have this other issue of not only food having an impact on circadian clocks, but the circadian rhythms in different biological processes might make a uh, or allow us to make a case for timing food in a certain way based on those. For example, as we mentioned, there is a kind of circadian or diurnal pattern to insulin sensitivity. So if we know it's highest early in the day and it's uh, we're more insulin resistant at the end of the day, again, this is where you get this kind of hypothesis of, well, should we try and avoid having large amount of carbohydrates right at the end of the day when someone is probably going to be more insulin resistant and therefore they're going to have a greater glucose excursion or their glucose goes higher and stays higher for longer at that point of the day. So you have these kind of two um, food impacting circadian uh, rhythms and circadian rhythms impacting maybe when we should have some food. So that would be um, probably the area that I think there's most to kind of discuss around or at least that I can give some insight on I think. So I guess the this always well, I, I many of the listeners will have this thought. Whenever I hear this, it makes me think back to the old school thought of oh, you shouldn't eat after six p.m. or when it goes dark, you shouldn't eat. And it's kind of like mm, maybe there's right. actually something to that. Yeah. So th this is interesting because one of the ways that or why I like bringing up this conversation is to try and stop us within a I suppose the evidence based circle of overcompensating for previous bad ideas. So for example, ideas like. Um, oh, if you skip breakfast and you're slowing down your metabolism, we know that's nonsense, right? Or if you eat after 6 p.m., it immediately gets stored as body fat, right? Or if you eat carbs after 6, it'll get stored. There's no way to burn it up. Nonsense, right? So those, quite rightly, we can push back against. And there's been a lot of messages saying to people, hey, you don't need to worry about those things. You don't need to have a breakfast. You can have food later in the day. As long as your overall intake is within certain parameters, you can still make progress body composition and health-wise, which is, is totally true. I'm not disputing any of that. I think that's a really useful message. However, we don't want to go too far and completely overcompensate and say, as long as you just hit daily macros, it doesn't matter what way you eat because that's just too overly simplistic of a statement. And so particularly now when we think about this area of timing, sure, it doesn't supersede things like overall what we're consuming or the types of foods we're consuming, but it could have a very real impact on body composition we can talk about and also talk about metabolic health, which are kind of two slightly different areas, but research has looked at both. So the idea is to say to people, actually, there could be something to maybe having something earlier in the day. And it might not be the best idea from a health standpoint to fast until the evening time and have just a huge ton of food right before bed. 
even though your macros are actually in line with what your daily targets were. And so that's the kind of idea um, that I was trying to get to. Of let's not overcompensate and throw the baby out with the bathwater and say it doesn't matter as long as we hit daily macros. So with the kind of chrononutrition stuff, at least to me, the, the way – um, I see what we have right now is maybe kind of four distinct areas we can talk about of how that might influence things. One, we can talk about timing. So when we eat a specific meal, at what time of day does that make a difference in say how we metabolize that meal and what we do with it? Second to that, we can say, well, is there something then to how we distribute calories across the day? Could that make an impact for either metabolic health and or body composition? Then we can maybe talk about consistency or regularity. And, and this is not consistency of habits. This is more about consistency of meal timing and meal frequency day to day. And then we can talk about feeding, fasting cycles, or getting into this area of time-restricted eating slash time-restricted feeding. So maybe um, to start, a few kind of things that we do observe that we have research on. First, with timing, I think it's pretty clear that if you eat at biological night, the, how you metabolize that meal is going to be worse in terms of your postprandial glucose response, insulin response, uh, fatty acids in the bloodstream and so on. So if you eat a meal, let's say at, let's take the extremes of say 3am versus the exact same meal at 3pm, your glucose and insulin responses are going to be completely different. So we see quite clearly there is a difference based on when you eat that meal. We've also seen this in a, a few studies that have taken the same meal in morning and at night. So like 12 or 13 hours apart, exact same meal, exact same macros, everything. And your postprandial glucose response, insulin response is different between those conditions. So something is different there, first of all, we, we can see. Some of that may be again explained by that difference in insulin sensitivity. Other things we see is a difference over the day in uh, things like gastric emptying. So it in versus when you have a meal in the morning versus the evening, if there's a difference in gastric emptying, that would again impact how you metabolize that meal. So other things we observe with breakfast skipping, um, again, that area is generally quite a mess because of all the different kind of confounders. Um, but again, we do see some associations with um, breakfast skipping and how that impacts your glycemic response to later meals. Um, with respect to when we should eat in the morning, I don't think it's a case of you must eat when you get up. And this old school idea, eat breakfast soon. Uh, but there is probably a case that in the early-ish part of the day to have some sort of nutrient ingestion would help entrain those rhythms at the same time you're getting that light exposure and setting them together, although I'm not completely convinced on that just yet. And we have no real idea of how early that needs to be. But what I definitely think we can say is avoiding eating at biological night or very late at night is probably a good idea. That probably depends on your chronotype and some other factors. But if we say on average for probably most people, that would be once it starts getting to like um, after eight o'clock, so like if you're eating at 9, 10, 11 p.m., probably not the best idea from a metabolic health standpoint. Um, the second part on calorie distribution ties into that as well. And this is where there's been some really kind of interesting work. So some of the first kind of observational work was done by Marta Garrelay's lab in Spain, where they looked at uh, a Mediterranean population. So the thing to know about Mediterranean populations is their biggest meal of the day tends to be lunch. And so they looked to see when was their biggest meal of the day? Did they have it late in the day or early in the day? So first they did an observational study and found that those that were having that biggest meal of the day, they're 40% their total intake in one meal, those that had it early in the day around one o'clock tended to have better body composition than those that had it later in the day. They also had better glycemic markers too. So then they followed up with an intervention study and again, they compared a late lunch versus an early lunch. So 1.30 PM versus 4.30. So this is their biggest meal of the day. And again, over the course of a 20 week intervention, you see differences in how much body fat was lost between the groups. And you also see differences in uh, glucose and insulin across that, that study as well. So metabolically and body composition, we're seeing differences um, with where you partition those. One that had a, again, would lend an idea that there's something to how we distribute calories was from Daniela Jakubovic uh, that did a study in 2013 comparing a large breakfast versus a large dinner. So the large, uh, so there were two uh, the two conditions were both a hypocaloric diet 
1,400 calories matched for macronutrients and either a the large breakfast group was 700 calorie breakfast, 500 calorie lunch, 200 calorie dinner. The large dinner was just the reverse. So 200 calories at breakfast, 500 calories at lunch, 700 calories at dinner. Within that uh, uh, diet, you see dramatic differences in the amount of weight loss. So in this, it was, I think, around like a bit over eight and a half kilos compared to like three and a half. So substantial difference there. And then as you'd expect, there was a massive difference in uh, blood glucose and insulin as well, both fasting and postprandial glucose response at the end of the study, but also interestingly within a week of the study as well. Um, so there was something to where those calories per partition that seems to be having an effect. Now, the problem with that particular study, uh, perhaps that might explain some of the difference in, in weight loss is that it was based on check-ins with a, a dietitian bi-weekly as opposed to the food being given to people. So it wasn't controlled like you'd have in like a metabolic ward, for example. Um, but what was reported seemed to be equal for calories and macronutrients. So we're seeing a difference there. So those things taken together would suggest that it might be a better idea to partition or, or bias a bit more of our calories to earlier in the day rather than later in the day. Um, in terms of why we're seeing some of those differences, again, some of the mechanisms could be the differences in insulin sensitivity across the day. We mentioned a difference in gastric emptying across the day. Uh, the biggest one in terms of body composition would probably in, be an impact on uh, energy expenditure. And the issue is now is how do you work out what is causing that change in energy expenditure? So, so the big thing to remember, if I'm saying that these things could influence body weight in like calorie intake match conditions, I'm not saying anything outside of energy balance is working magically here. It's something that's changing energy balance, but we're just could be having the same calorie intake. So therefore we're doing something to change energy expenditure potentially. So one study that was done actually in Bath by James Betts, the, they um, looked at a breakfast of 700 calories. So they had to eat most of that within the first couple of hours of waking and have it all done by at least 11. So 700 calorie breakfast versus a group that skipped breakfast. So they, a, a typical intermittent fasting didn't eat until 12 PM and then they could eat as normal. The rest of the day that the groups eat ad libitum. What you see was, and this is pretty consistent with most in, intermittent fasting research, is that the group that fasted ate less calories. So the group that had the 700 calories at breakfast ate a bit more. However, you see no differences in body weight or body composition across the trial because the group that ate that 700 calorie breakfast ended up expending a lot more energy, about 440 calories, if I remember correctly, in this particular study, more than the group that had skipped breakfast. So they were eating more, but they were both still at energy uh, or at the same net energy balance. And so they tried to say, well, what part of the energy expenditure was being impacted? So there was a significant uh, difference statistically in diet-induced thermogenesis or that thermic effect of feeding. And that's consistent with some other trials as well that have shown that, but the absolute amount wasn't that great. The biggest difference was in uh, physical activity thermogenesis. And so it was just this massive ramp up in their activity thermogenesis. Most of that seems to be quite low level, low intensity activity. So just movements throughout the day as opposed to extra exercise. So there we're kind of seeing, well, maybe depending on how we distribute our calories, that can impact how much energy we expend. And therefore, this is how it's having those body composition effects. Um, so some of that mechanistic work more still needs to be done, but at least shows that there are some mechanisms that could explain why we're seeing differences in body composition. Um, then the kind of final piece we can maybe talk a bit more about is all the trials that have looked at time-restricted feeding or probably if we're talking about humans, time-restricted eating, where we have a certain feeding window and then a much longer fasting window that would be similar to what people think of with daily intermittent fasting. But with time-restricted eating, we're really talking about something that was, is rooted in circadian research. Or that's where it was born out of. We have just an enormous amount done in rodents. And so there's probably not much, it's not worth talking too much about that apart from saying every time it's been looked at for every different type of marker, there's been benefits. And I kind of had a joke, I put up my slide, basically just the takeaways like rats just love time restricted feeding because everything seems to get better. Um, you, you like put them on an obesogenic diet, for example. And if you just shrink their feeding window, they don't gain body fat. They don't 
become insulin resistant as they usually do in most studies. Um, so with humans, there's been a few that we can run through, uh, but I'll probably stop talking for a moment in case you want to jump in on anything we've, we've done so far. Well, that's very kind of you. There was a lot to take in and it's really mm-hmm. fascinating. What It's just things going through my mind are just like general practices that physique athletes, a lot of the listeners are kind of physique athletes or kind of into that sort of thing and things that I do or clients do or I see people doing that may be kind of misaligned with circadian rhythm alignment in terms of what they're doing there and Mm. something that interested me there was um, obviously you talked about the kind of distribution of calories across the day seems to be impacting physical activity and that's what's having the biggest thing do you think a lot of people are now like tracking their steps and that's kind of keeping them accountable and um, because they're doing that do you think that's almost kind of do you think it Obviously, it's not getting around all the benefits of having more calories, mm. but you think that kind of circumvents a lot of the differences if people were to kind of try and keep that somewhat the same? Yeah. So I don't think it's going to, for example, if someone uh, distributed more of their calories later in the day and let's say they would naturally be expending less, is that going to be necessarily a problem for a physique athlete? Probably not because of, like you said, they're doing compensatory things like adding in steps or also to, to, to the end point, if they're not losing at the rate they want, they're probably just going to reduce their intake anyway. So it's not going to stop them. It's probably going to have a bigger probably impact if we're talking about at a, a larger scale for people who aren't going to have that level of tracking. Right. Now we can have this, um, where, where it could again, potentially have an impact for, um, physique athletes, but there are some big caveats, which I'll, I'll, I'll mention later, uh, which might make it contraindicated. But one of the benefits would be, well, if there is this difference in energy expenditure, now it could mean either one of two things. It could mean that you could um, have the same net deficit, but be eating a bit more mm-hmm. calories, or you could um, keep your calories uh, the same and be having a larger deficit. But how much of a difference we still need to work out. There's been nothing that's looked at it in anyone close to being a kind of well-trained athlete uh, to any real degree. Um, And like I say, a lot of those things are still taken care of. Um, So I don't think it's the difference between someone being able to achieve a physique outcome or not if they're doing that level of tracking. Uh, I'm much more optimistic on on a broad sense for most people that are maybe either eating a bit more ad libitum or not as tightly controlled um, or looking for stuff that would maybe be useful to to comply with uh, an easy set of rules, which which we can talk about in a moment. Um, So I think that where I'd have more faith. So I I don't think it's going to make a dramatic difference there, but there then there's the larger conversation about does that still make it a good idea to have huge amounts of food right before bed just because you can still have a certain body composition? I think there's some, at some point we could make a case that it could be some uh, negative payoff in the long run. At what point that becomes an issue, I have no idea. And, and this is the difficulty, right? Of like that thing might slightly have this uh, increased risk of something negative happening in the long run. But if you look at what uh, those p- types of people are doing, there's so many things that mitigate any downside regular activity, doing all this training, a certain degree of, uh, like they're, um, training, uh, doing resistance training regularly. They have some degree of cardiovascular fitness. They're lean. They're probably t- trying to take care of all these other factors that would potentially give them a benefit. They're trying to look at sleep, the types of food they're having. So is it, how much of a difference it's going to make? Is it going to be visible? I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe, but, um, so they become a, a more difficult one to, to answer, yeah. I think, uh, speaking for those sort of people, probably if anything can help, they do it because um, it's just kind of that's the nature of that sort of person. Mm. Uh, so it, I think it's good potential. Well, I guess we can get into the practicalities of it um, a bit later. But something I did want to dig into was whether or not there was any, you talked about insulin sensitivity being kind of higher in the morning, later at night, not so high. Is there a kind of macronutrient that maybe you should be thinking more about biasing as well? Is it kind mm. of like, I don't know, some people backload, mm. they kind of do fats and carb, uh, fat and protein all through the day and then all their carbs at night is that maybe a less good strategy or can we have protein before bed? That's obviously yeah. something a lot of bodybuilders do. Right. So going on again, what we know from just a mechanistic sense, and if we're saying that insulin sensitivity is higher early in the day and then gets worse throughout the day, uh, we know that what definitely gets screwed metabolism wise with like eating at the biological night is going to be carbohydrate metabolism and fat metabolism. Um, so Definitely, it, 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 you can make a strong case that large amounts of carbohydrates at night are probably going to have 
a greater glucose excursion at that time than if they had them early in the day. Now, there's a couple of mitigating factors for, I would suggest, uh, or I would presume a lot of the people listening to this in your audience who maybe do have quite a large amount of carbs in the evening are probably doing some resistance training in the hours leading up to that as well. So probably an evening training session. If that's the case, one of the cool things we know about resistance training and the muscle contraction it creates is the glucose transporters that are within muscle cells, so particularly the GLUT4 transporters, move from the center of the cell up to the surface of the muscle cell. Now, usually for glucose to be moved from the bloodstream into a cell, that glucose disposal to happen, that's mediated by insulin. And that's one of its roles. It's to allow these glucose uh, transporters to, to pr essentially provide a great gateway for glucose to move into the cell. After resistance training, we have this non-insulin mediated GLUT4 translocation. So in other words, just without insulin being needed, we can get glucose disposal to happen. So we can move that glucose from the blood into, say, a muscle cell without that requirement for insulin to be uh, managing that job. So it probably doesn't even matter that much that the cell is a bit more insulin resistant at that time of day because they're still going to be able to dispose of it. So that's one of the things that I mentioned as this kind of mitigating factor of that. Again, it'd be cool to do some research on it to see uh, because it would, it would make sense to me that if that's the case, if you just lifted some weights and now you eat some carbs, you're going to be able to dispose of that fine. So from purely a, a glucose excursion point of view, it's probably not a problem in that context. Um, it s still might work out that it's better to have more energy earlier in the day. But I think that would be the, the big issue with carbohydrate um, at that time. Um, and also then if someone was trying to do that, say on a non-training day, you could probably make a good case that if you did want to have something later in the evening, having a high protein, lower carb, lower fat meal might be worthwhile. Uh, and actually my friend uh, Alan Flanagan is, is hoping to investigate this some point some point looking particularly at shift workers of how um, we know that if they're going to have to eat during the biological night and carb and fat metabolism kind of screwed during that point, well, what about if we had high protein? Because what we've seen with the studies done out of Luke Van Loon's lab, where they gave the um, protein ingestion throughout the night and we saw a complete digestion of protein, um, uh, that would suggest that we can probably have a high protein load and not really have any of these damaging metabolic consequences. So maybe you could set it up in a way of having feeding still during that non-optimal time of biological night, but if they're high protein, low carb, low fat, maybe from a metabolic standpoint, it might be a bit better. So that could make some sense. And it could also allow, uh, the types of people that would be listening to your show to still get those regular protein feedings across the day, maximize that MPS response across the 24 hours by having that bolus of protein, but not really needing to have huge amounts of calories and carbohydrate in that very final meal just before they go to bed, for example. So that could be one way to circumvent that. And like I say, the other could be uh, through resistance training, depending on how that's timed, um, how that impacts the kind of circadian aspect to it is kind of still a bit up, up for debate, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting and really well answered. I think um, I think some of the kind of when I've kind of read the sleep researchers kind of recommendations, kind of obviously activity later in the day is kind of one of the things they kind of recommend against, and also um, not eating a load before bed as well is kind of one of the ones they kind of recommend against. And I guess that plays into everything you're kind of talking about there, but um, I think mm. really helpful for everyone who's listening. Yeah. And there's also a kind of a few more practical non-circadian issues with eating close to sleep that may kind of play a role there as well. Like you see, if you have a large meal just before bed, some people might be a bit more predisposed to acid reflux because they're kind of obviously lying horizontally and having that food there. If they're prone to that, that may be an issue. And then just some people find that their meal timing makes their sleep quality a bit different. Uh, so there is the potential for a large meal to again maybe impact melatonin to some degree too right. so you might want to leave like two hours pre-sleep um, without nutrient ingestion um, or, or a large calorie load at least and then the other stuff we talked about calorie distribution it, it seems to hint so far we're not sure but at least at least seems to be that more calories pushed earlier today might be a good idea um, and actually two of the groups in the UK are, are doing a study on this the group in Aberdeen and, and the University of Surrey um, are working on a project, the big breakfast study, where they're trying to answer this question of looking at putting um, more of those calories in the earlier part of the day 
versus later in the day and what impacts that has. And they're trying to do a lot of the um, really detailed stuff looking at energy expenditure to see exactly what's going on. So hopefully in the next year or two, we should hopefully have some of those answers because that work is currently ongoing. Um, so that should give us some answers there. Um, but yeah. Uh, and then the kind of final piece that we can maybe get into is just time restricted eating. Um, yeah. because that is, I think from a practical sense is probably where the center of the bullseye is for a lot of general folks that, yeah. and, um, but yeah. No, feel free to dig into that one. I, cool. I'd love to hear about so, time restricted. So like, like I said, so the, from a, an easy out set we're talking about feeding window kind of shortened um, or at least within a certain time frame number of hours and then an extended fasting window because we know on average most people in the population tend to have quite a long feeding window so there was a, a study by Gil and Panda that they, they had this really cool study where they they gave people this app that they would log their food in but they would use take a picture of their food as they're having a meal but it would automatically tend to send a timestamp of that to the researchers so you could see what people were eating but when and a, a couple of things from that study one is as we mentioned earlier you see a dramatic difference in when people have their first meal during the week compared to on week end days and so you see this shift uh, between um, their first meal and also the last meal usually as well between weekdays and weekends and they kind of turn this metabolic jet lag on the same lines as social jet lag the second thing you see is that on average, most people's feeding window was around 15 or 15 and a half hours. So having, ingesting some calories pretty soon after waking up and then pretty close to bed as well. And so having this calorie ingestion all throughout the day. Um, what they got people to do in that, they had an intervention part to that study where they would sh uh, shrink that window to about eight hours. Uh, the cool thing here was two things. First, they allowed people to self-select when that hour window was. And then the other was they didn't have any other food rules. So they didn't tell them to eat specific foods, to eat a certain amount of food, to do anything else, eat your normal diet, but just can you shrink this window within eight hours? You saw, I think it was about a drop of a bit over three kilos from that intervention. And they maintained that 12 months after that, that intervention as well. Um, another study that shows the kind of practical power of this at scale, particularly in the general population, perhaps, uh, was a study, one of the ones that came out of the University of Surrey. Uh, Rona Antoni was the lead author on this, and it was a, a pilot trial where they looked at a time-restricted um, eating model where they gave people just one, or you can think of it as one or two rules, whatever way you think, but simply to say, your breakfast, we want you to push that back by an hour and a half. And your final meal or your dinner, we want to pull that forward by an hour and a half. And that was the only thing they told them to do. No change to food, eat your normal diet, eat as much as you want, whatever. Just make those two timing changes. You see they ate dramatically less calories and therefore they end up losing a considerable amount of weight and they improved some of their glycemic markers through that as well. Now, because of the limited numbers of people in that study, it's only a pilot trial, again, not kind of contr controlled all intake, et cetera, et cetera. The important thing that why I bring up that study is that it's such a simple intervention that there's almost no education required. So when we're thinking at a large scale to try and impact people's overall intake, when we can't have intensive one-on-one -on -one coaching, at a large scale, now we're seeing a part particular intervention that just something as simple as can you push in your first meal and pull up your final meal are having actual impacts there. So we have those types of studies. Um, there's been a couple of studies. So the big issue here is when we're seeing improvements in glycemic response and in metabolic markers is, again, if we're seeing that in combination with weight loss, it's hard to determine, is it the weight loss or is it something else? So a couple of the studies that have been done in time-restricted eating have also kept people weight stable. So there was one by Sutton, 2018, and the same group, I think, did one the following just a few months ago. I think Jamshed was the lead author on it. So they compared a 12-hour feeding window, um, so like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. versus a six-hour eating window. So one of their studies was 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. So your last meal of the day was at 2, and then the other study was 7 a.m. until 1 p.m. So your final meals are one or two. Now they saw um, in the, uh, there was a difference in mean glucose across the day, even in a kind of weight stable condition for the Sutton one, if I remember correctly. So there's, uh, we're seeing a difference there. And you also see some improvements in um, some of the markers for insulin, uh, fasting insulin. Also, I think 
uh, postprandial glucose response as well. So we're seeing a benefit to that shrinking of the window. The problem with that is, again, that's more of a kind of proof of um, mechanism as opposed to we can roll this out to everyone because it's probably not feasible to get people to finish eating at 1 p.m. But we're seeing a difference with uh, time-restricted eating there. Uh, the next kind of question with time-restricted eating is, does it matter where we place that feeding window? So is it just that we're shrinking the time and we're having a longer fasting period? Uh, because I think there's probably a benefit to that as well. Um, but it's does, does it matter where we place it earlier or late in the day? We only have kind of one real study that I'm aware of that have been published looking directly at that question. Uh, so it was a paper by Hutchinson where they looked at um, an early time-restricted feeding protocol where they ate from, I think, 8 p.m., I think, until maybe 4. And then the other one was from uh, 12 p.m. until 9. So it was a nine-hour time-restricted feeding uh, protocol. Uh, so, yeah, there'll be 8 o'clock till 5 in the first condition. Um, there wasn't really that much of a difference between the groups in most of the things they measured there. I think there was a slight significant difference in... Uh, mean glucose across the day, uh, but not too much else. But that's the only one we've had trying to answer that question so far. Um, but it, based on the other mechanisms we've, we've we've talked about, it would make some sense that we want to not only restrict that window, but probably not have it back-ended right at the end of the day and probably pushed a bit earlier. Now, with all this chrononutrition stuff, we just have so many questions left, right? So like, what is the optimal feeding window? Is there a difference between eight versus 10 or is seven better than eight? Like we don't know at what time do, should that be? Is there a big difference between where we push that across the day? How early or late should it be? At what point does it become too problematic? Um, what is having more of the impact Just shrinking that window or just having less, um, or having more fasting going on? Um, how early should we eat? Like, is, is it, we, I think a general rule of thumb of eating earlier in the day is probably good and a bit more calories earlier, but like, what is that time point? Is it just the first half of the day? Is it the first few hours? Again, we kind of don't really know. Um, but taking collectively all that stuff together, uh, to me, I think I would probably say there's a few things we can, we can come away with avoiding eating lots late at biological night. Probably if we can, and it's practical skewing that a bit earlier in the day, um, probably trying to have some degree of, uh, a restricted feeding window for people who are trying to c control their caloric intake at least, um, can be really useful and probably, um, trying to match that up with our light and dark exposure. Um, and that's as kind of specific as we can be at the moment, I would say, unfortunately, um, then there are a few caveats that I should, I should hopefully mention, and I can mention those in a moment because I'll let you jump in, but definitely in relation to athletes um, and then some just practical ones, there are some contraindications that, that we should probably outline. No, I mean, I don't have a lot else to add. I think you explained the kind of practical takeaways. And whilst you say it's not a, a lot um, that we have there that we can prescribe, it's, I think, a lot more than what people kind of had. And I think there was a lot of just unknowns of what is kind of all of this so i think it at mm. least gives us a step in the right direction and um yeah going over some of the caveats and uh, what we kind of don't know would be fantastic sure so um I'll, I'll try and keep this this part brief there's probably about three or four areas that we need to be aware of one is uh, one we've already mentioned which is the timing of training so that can change some things um that relates also to someone's goal so if we're talking about an athlete who has a very specific performance goal or a physique goal um and we're, tr we're not going to supersede any of the main fundamental aspects to powering that performance and that recovery from those. So there's no point in saying, um, oh, we're going to have this restricted feeding window, so don't eat after this time, even if you've just trained and you're not allowed to eat protein because it's a, a feeding window, right? Or uh, and if I have an MMA athlete and they train twice a day, I'm not going to say only eat within the six hour window and don't eat carbs after this certain time. It just makes no sense. So again, use some degree of, of common sense. If we're talking about athletes and, and those with competitive aspirations, the main fundamentals that dictate those good pr principles that you've talked about on this podcast uh, before are still going to be in place. These are not going to supersede those. Um, the other one would be 
don't let these kind of rule over the things that impact people's overall compliance or ad- adherence to the diet. Um, so for example, even though I'm, I'm pretty sold on time restricted feeding as a, a good idea, most of the time, if I'm going out for a meal with friends and it's like 9 PM, I'm not going to sit there and just drink water and say, Oh, I can't eat after this time. Right. Just don't go that way. Don't tell people I need to, don't tell them it's going to be like, don't go the other way and start scaremongering about some of this stuff. Right. Um, so allow for those things, but generally you can still have stick to these kind of rules. And then also one question that tends to come up is, um, what if these kind of hamper people's compliance to the more important fundamentals around nutrition, right? The types of food they're eating, um, how much anxiety they have around food rules now, um, the practicalities of fitting it into their schedule. All those things are really super important. So of course, if this causes those things to be undermined, any of those main fundamental pieces probably don't follow those rules, right? Those things are still really important. However, um, it does seem that it's not maybe as big an issue, um, like I, I think some of the the papers looking at time restricted feeding specifically seem to be pretty good in terms of how easy people find to implement it. And it's not that big a change once they've adapted to it. Um, and then just kind of on a personal note, um, and probably a lot of people might disagree on this, people who tend to think that they are, oh, I, I just don't like eating at all in the early part of the day and I like having a large meal late at night. Um, I I do think some of that is kind of a learned behavioral thing as opposed to an innate kind of genetic thing as well. And I think just giving enough period of time of trialing eating a bit more earlier in the day and not these huge meals late at night, I think you will find you can kind of train yourself or essentially just adjust to that and your hunger will come back around, right? That the, the reason why you probably feel really hungry at night and not so much in the morning is, well, if you do that all the time, that's naturally how you're going to be. Um, so I think there's a kind of learned element to that, um, but that's a whole other side tangent that I can get into. So if it un- those are kind of the four main caveats that I would say. Um, if they don't apply to someone, then I think we can generally say some type of feeding window is a good idea. How long? I'm not exactly sure, but let's say maybe 11 hours or less. Um, and then trying to skew a bit more earlier in the day. I don't know how early, but earlier. So it's the first half of the day, a bit more of your calories. Um, and then avoid eating at biological night and then pay attention to your light dark exposure. And those kind of four tenants are probably, I would say, worthwhile focusing on a bit if, if someone never focused them on all or at least not dismissing them and say they don't matter in any way. Fantastic. And I was smiling a lot when you talked about kind of your personal experience with people who are like a learned behavior eating more at night because I personally had done that and I think it's kind of carried over from like dieting and you kind of mm. get a bit of especially in prep you get kind of anxiety that you're going to be hungry at night so you make sure you like put a meal there right. and then that carries over into like massing periods and you end up putting like a thousand calories right before bed which for a period of time is kind of nice but after a while you I certainly felt it impacted my sleep and mm. a lot of my clients were the same they kind of had this learned behavior from maybe dieting periods where they had backloaded a load of calories right but when you get into a surplus plus and it just becomes an unreasonable amount of food to have at that time um, and a lot of them had been able to transition and they found that they had better energy in the day training sessions were better and they didn't have that kind of hunger at night either so I would right. further confirm what you found there yeah because I was the exact same as you I, I always told myself and said it to others that oh yeah I'm just one of those people I'm I prefer having more later in the evening and not much in the day but that's just because that's what I got in the habit of doing. And that's when I naturally, then my hunger subsided to that. And then you just move away from that and you realize, oh, I just kind of adapt. And now I'm not as hungry in the evening because I've had a ton of food earlier in the day. You know, surprise, surprise, right? Or I didn't eat since 7 p.m. last night. So now I'm actually hungry at at early in in the morning, right? Or it doesn't have to be immediately, but in the first part of the day. Uh, So yeah, I, I think a lot of it is kind of just adjusting to a certain kind of rhythm. And that would kind of, again, make sense that our body gets used to these kind of typical feeding times. Um, and that, that's one of the things I probably didn't really mention that there, there's a consistency element that seems to be at play as well with the chrononutrition stuff of um, we know meal frequency, for example, doesn't really matter that much. You can have whatever meal frequency you want. 
Um, but it might matter of how frequently you change that day to day. So there's one paper again out of the UK by Al Hussein 2016, where they compared a group that had six meals a day. So three main meals and three snacks versus an irregular feeding, uh, frequency. So anywhere between three and nine meals that fluctuated every single day for two weeks. So you go three, then seven, then four, then nine, then five, then eight for the two weeks. And you saw differences in, um, I believe ghrelin, subjective hunger, and then some of the glycemic markers like insulin and, and, and glucose as well. So it probably doesn't matter what your meal frequency is, but it might matter if that's randomly changing day to day. And if your meal timing changes dramatically from day to day, this is what we think of like as erratic eating, that could make a difference uh, from a kind of metabolic perspective. Um, and then there was one more thing just as you were talking that, um, oh yeah, one of the other contraindications is people trying to eat more food. And again, if you don't probably want to put them on a time restricted eating model if they're already struggling to eat enough, yeah. right? If they're in a gaining phase and they're saying, look, I just can't eat anymore. I'm not gaining. You, again, you probably want to go the opposite direction then. Or if you have uh, your sports nutritionist working with an Olympic swimmer who has like 10,000 calories, I'm probably not going to give them like a seven hour feeding window. So yeah. there's a, always, always caveats to that. But uh, uh, yeah. I feel that right just now <laughs> because I'm on, well, I feel like it's not 10,000 calories, but it, it's getting to a point where it's, I, I can restrict it. It's like whenever I can get it right. in is good in a sense. <laughs> right. Yeah. You need to go like Dave Tate style. Of, uh, <laughs> you remember that video where he's like, have the Hershey bars throughout your meals because oh, <laughs> even if you're full, it'll just melt and go down your throat. <laughs> need to go that man. Nutella. It's just easy. Don't even need to chew that. <laughs> just drink that. Fantastic. Danny, I want to say a massive thank you for you coming on. Um, it's been far too long. You should have come on already. I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed that it's actually been that long, but it's been a cracker of an episode and I'm really happy to have had you here and to share what you've shared with our audience. And I'm sure it's going to go down incredibly well. I want to make sure everyone can kind of find you the best way. Um, I know kind of you're not massive on social media. Um, so oh, where, where should people head over? <laughs> uh, sure. So probably the easiest place is just sigmanutrition.com. Everything is probably linked up there. If they want to go direct to the podcast, then just search Sigma Nutrition Radio on any app. They'll find it. And then, yeah, social media. Um, I'm on there. Um, if you can try and wake me up and tell me to how to do it better. Uh, but Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma, uh, Twitter is nutrition Danny. And then just put either my name or Sigma nutrition into Facebook and you'll find me there too. Um, but yeah, anywhere that's most convenient for people, I'm happy to answer any questions, um, or take any abuse depending on how they found this. <laughs> I'm up for both. <laughs> awesome. Um, and I want to say, I highly recommend checking out Sigma Nutrition, especially if you like getting into more of the sciencey stuff. I think, um, Danny and everyone on his podcast do an excellent job at that. So, uh, thank you guys for listening and thank you again, Danny. You are welcome, man. Thanks for the chat.